and that is the incarnation of the Son of God. Incarnation is a theological term. It refers to the Son, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, assuming to himself, taking to himself, a true and complete human nature. It's, it's mind-boggling. There are amazing confessional descriptions of this theological truth, where God, not ceasing to be God, became man for us. It's pretty incredible. And it's necessary to everything we hold dear, to the entirety of our salvation. As the early church father Gregory of Nazianza said, whatever is not assumed in the incarnation is not redeemed. Meaning, if, if Christ, if the Son did not assume the fullness of our humanity, take it to himself in the incarnation, then the fullness of our humanity is not redeemed. And so the incarnation that we celebrate and that we focus our attention upon is extremely significant. It's a beautiful doctrine. And so we will do that today. Not only is the incarnation necessary and confounding, but it is something that was promised from of old. And so our series, um, this Advent season, is about the promise of the Lord's coming, his parousia, his advent. And we're going to look at some ways in which the Old Testament points ahead to Jesus. And today we're going to be focusing our attention on how Jesus is the promised seed. He's the promised seed. And so turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 3, or you can follow along in your bulletin. We'll be looking this morning at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 all the way down through verse 15. This is God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit trees, fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, 
I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come before you needing to hear you speak by your Holy Spirit today. We come each carrying our own burdens, our own sin, our own wounds, and we need you to bind us up, and we need to hear your gospel. And so speak we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, as we said, focusing in this series upon the promise. And promises are, are significant things, just in general. As relational creatures, all of human society revolves around and, in a sense, is built upon the promises we make promises we make to each other. Promises are at the center of our political system. Politicians are elected or not elected based on the promises they make and how well they can keep them. Promises are at the center of our judicial system. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? So help me God. Promises are at the center of our economic system. Pull out your wallet and look at that dollar bill. It's a promissory note. What happens when we lose faith in that note to deliver the promised value? Bad things, right? Bad things can happen. It's all built on promises. Human society is founded on promises. The most fundamental human institution is founded upon promises. The vows man makes to a woman and a woman makes to a man. Likewise, the kingdom of God is built and revolves around promises, not the promises that God has made to us. A whole structure of promises throughout Scripture. And here in Genesis 3.15, this is a promise that stands at the very bottom of of the foundation of that entire structure of promises that God has made to us. This passage has often been called the proto-evangelium, meaning the proto-gospel, the first enunciation of the gospel ever. And what we have here, you might not have recognized the gospel because we didn't hear anything about Jesus by name. We didn't hear an invitation 
to accept Jesus into our hearts. But what we have here is the gospel in seed form. It's packaged really small, just a few lines. And it's kind of shadowy, kind of enigmatic. It's kind of shadowy, but it leads to Jesus. Really, the whole biblical story is encompassed in these lines here in Genesis 3.15, leading us to Jesus. And the, entire, the entirety of our hope and salvation hangs on whether God will fulfill what he says here. And so I'd like to consider two things today as we look at this verse, Genesis 3.15. That is, these two things, the surprising nature of this promise and the saving nature of this promise. So let's consider first the surprising nature of this promise. God says in this verse, he's speaking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, or seed, literally, and her offspring, or seed, and he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And we said this was a promise, Right? But at first glance, it doesn't really look like a promise. We don't hear the words, I promise, from God. When we think of promises, we think of covenants, things that are very formal, with oaths and ceremonies and vows. And covenants in Scripture are extremely important. Covenants bind two parties together in a solemn, legal, oath-bound agreement. We've seen this in Exodus and covenants are extremely important in working out God's plan of redemption, in kind of narrowing it, in developing it, in carrying it forward step by step till its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's what covenants are for. But God doesn't need a covenant with vows to make his word binding. When God speaks and says, I will do something, it's binding because he doesn't lie. He never fails to come through. When he says, this will happen, it will happen. And so as far as we are concerned, this is nothing less than a promise that we hear spoken to the serpent because God's word endures forever. And so this promise that we hear at Genesis 3, we said it's surprising. And it's surprising for this reason, because Adam and Eve and the ser- even the serpent did not expect for this promise to be delivered to them. They didn't expect these words. How do, we, how do we know that they didn't expect it? How do we know that it's surprising? Well, we kind of have to dig a little deeper into this narrative we're so familiar with and kind of put ourselves in their shoes a bit. Remember, God created a good and perfect world in Genesis 1 and 2, and he placed Adam and Eve, his very good image bearers in this garden called Eden, and they were created with a purpose to serve like priests in God's garden temple. They were essentially given a mandate. In, in Genesis 1:28. God blessed them and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and expand the garden temple through their dominion, over the creation as they expanded and multiplied over the face of the earth. Essentially, God was tasking these two royal human beings to build the kingdom of God, 
And chapter 2 ends with them looking forward to this task and it ends in a state of serenity. Adam has just sung a song over his newly created bride that God has made for him and from him. And they stand together there before the holy presence of God without any covering, facing each other and before God without even a hint of shame or terror. No impurity, nothing but pure and holy delight. Actually, the word Eden means delight. This is where Genesis 2 ends. And as we saw in our reading, Genesis 3 is a little different. In Genesis 3, without any warning or explanation, something sinister slithers in to this good creation. The serpent is described as a crafty, the craftiest of beings that God made. It's a a creature. And yet, the evil, obviously evil nature of this creature means that somehow we have an intruder into God's very good world. And the Bible doesn't, the, the text doesn't stop and explain the philosophical way that this can be. But he's there. And we know from later revelation that this is not just an ordinary snake. This is the embodiment of evil itself. This is this snake is possessed by the evil one. In the words of Revelation 12:19, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's who this is. And what is this serpent after as he slithers in next to Eve and begins to speak to her? What does he want really? The serpent knows that if he can get these two royal image bearers to believe his promises and listen to his voice above and instead of God's, that they will be, in the words of one author, effectively transferring their allegiance to him. They will be giving Satan the keys to the kingdom. Satan is attempting to co-opt the throne, but he needs them to willingly renounce God's claim upon them. Right? They were created with, with uh, the Heidelberg Catechism written on their heart, in a, in a sense. I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful creator. And the, the serpent is seeking to get them to say, I am my own. I belong to myself. And so the serpent slithers up and he starts speaking to Eve. He says, God is a repressive kind of God. He's withholding from you. And he's holding you back from realizing your true potential. He wants to be God all by himself. And he knows that if you eat this magic fruit... You can be God, too. He doesn't want that. It's kind of hard for us to feel just how sinister this is because we're so familiar with the story. In my study, I came across this interesting example of what it might have felt like or what it should feel like to see this. In 2017, a study, a kind of whistleblower study, 
was uh, came out with something about smart toys, toys with some Bluetooth technology in them, stuffed animals that were given to small children, and and the study showed that certain of these smart toys were actually easily hijacked, easily hacked, and could be actually used by another person outside of a home to speak and share messages with your children. Be careful what you buy this Christmas. And what if you discovered your small child speaking to a stranger in her room? A stranger parked outside, speaking friendly words, speaking nicely and softly, saying, unlock the door. Does that, does that make you feel something inside? Some kind of rage? But what's, what's even worse about the story is that this kind of thing is happening, but Adam is just standing there doing nothing. He should be between his newly created wife and this serpent speaking lies, and he's not doing anything. Like if we were watching this on TV the way we watch a a sports event, the announcer would be like, what is he doing? Right? And we would be throwing our chips at the TV. You know, Adam, what are you doing? He's doing nothing. He should be finding the nearest rock to crush and silence this. Liar. But Adam does nothing. He lets his bride get seduced in his very presence. And Adam himself is seduced. He chooses to do the same. They both, we know, eat of the fruit. And Eden just dies in their arms. Sin and shame, barrenness, anxious toil, futility, and death will become the dominant forces in the world. Satan has effectively co-opted Adam's throne and has graffitied his name all over it. And in the place of God's kingdom, he intends to build his own version of it. Babylon, the the great city of man, where the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life rule. This is what he intends to do. Now the serpent can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion. It looks like he succeeded, right? They did this. Eve and Adam sided with the serpent. They yoked themselves to him. And it seems like Satan knows that if God condemns him and destroys him, he's going to have to destroy them too. But surprisingly, God holds a trial. And surprisingly, he doesn't destroy them. He doesn't execute any of them. And he doesn't even bring down the pronouncement of his curse directly upon the head of Adam or Eve. But he does bring down his curse directly upon the serpent. Right? He does announce the devastating consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. But to the serpent alone, he says, cursed are you. To Adam, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. And this is surprising, 
that he would do this. It's not what they deserved or what they expected. They were hiding in terror and dread, knowing what they deserved in fearful expectation of a fiery judgment. And instead, they hear this word. They're spared. And they hear God God address the serpent in front of them. And as God addresses the serpent and curses him, they hear a word of hope for them. As God's speaking to the serpent, he implies that he's not done with Adam and Eve. When he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Right there, Eve and Adam, they perk up. What? God is saying he will take the side of the woman against the serpent. He is denying the serpent's claim on her. And more than that, he goes on to declare that the serpent's final execution will come through her. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The serpent will be crushed under the foot of her seed, her offspring. How are we to understand these words from God about this seed, this offspring? It's a little hard to get what specifically he's talking about. Does Is the offspring people or a person, right? The Hebrew word translated offspring or seed, the Hebrew word is in the singular, and it refers to either a group of seeds or an individual seed. It's ambiguous, and only the context can tell us, really, what's being referred to. In the first half of the verse, it seems like God is speaking of many offspring, right? A a lineage of people coming from the woman will basically be an army against the serpent. God will cause a break between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed, the serpent's offspring. The second half of the verse seems to speak of an individual offspring of the woman, because it doesn't say they will crush your head and you will bruise their heel. It says he. So in the genius of Scripture, what we see is a a beautiful picture painted. And really what what it is is both things are coming together here. It really is both. It is a, it shows a protracted conflict between the children of the serpent and the children of the woman that God will preserve a remnant from the woman and the rest will bow their knee to the serpent as Adam and Eve did. And also it shows a climactic showdown between the serpent himself and an individual offspring, a child of Eve, who will trample on the head of the serpent and who will bring about his final execution. This is what is presented, is spoken, and Adam and Eve hear it. And this seed, in trampling the serpent, will be bitten in the heel, will be wounded, will be perhaps even killed by this snake. This is the surprising announcement. And what's so surprising is actually the woman is, in a sense, participating in the execution of the serpent because the executioner will come through her. How angry do you think Satan would have been to hear this word? 
from God. It's as if God brings him in close and he says to him, you see that woman over there? You see her trying to cover up, head down, weeping, ashamed? You think you beat her? She's going to destroy you. You used her like an instrument to enthrone yourself and I'll bring about your end through her. Poetic justice, right? This is the surprising nature of the promise that Adam and Eve hear hear from the mouth of God. God holds back the full weight of his cursed judgment over them and he refuses to give up his image bearers to the serpent. And in the midst of sin and curse, God speaks a word of hope and salvation that the seed of the serpent's final destruction will come through her. This is the surprise we see, the surprising nature of the promise. Let's also consider the saving nature of the promise. Have you ever wondered in this declaration, where's Adam? Where's Adam in this proto-gospel enunciation? He's nowhere. It's all about the woman and her seed. And sure, Adam probably was standing by thinking it's implied that he will have some minimal contribution to bringing forth offspring, as men do. But notice that the seed is not called Adam's seed, Adam's offspring. And that's interesting and that's out of the ordinary because in the ancient world and even in scripture, see, genealogies, lineage was always traced father to son, and always going back to the patriarch. But here, the seed is being traced back not to the patriarch, but to the woman alone. Only the woman is named. Why? Well, consider, Adam is the natural father of the human race. But this natural father of ours handed over his headship of the original family, to the serpent. Our natural father subjected himself and his entire family in him to another Lord, another master, another father. In Adam all died. And if the children are going to remain merely under the natural headship of Adam, They belong necessarily to the serpent. The serpent stands over Adam and seeks to claim the human family as his own. Right? Dad lost the house to the serpent. The serpent is in the house, in Dad's chair. And he says, the family's mine. And so in a spiritual sense, Eve is portrayed here as a widowed woman, as a single mom gathering her children to her, her true children to her, and escaping the tyranny of this usurper. In a spiritual sense, Eve is this woman waiting for a new Adam, 
waiting for another Adam who will do what her first husband failed to do. Who will trample down the serpent and kick him out of the house, kick him off his throne, and cast him out. Friends, that is what Jesus has done. That's who he came to be. That's the reason for his coming. John says in 1 John 3:18, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. When the fullness of time had come, Paul says, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, connecting us back to this ancient promise. Jesus is born of the woman to be the second Adam. He is not just born of any woman, but he's born of a virgin with zero contribution coming from a son of Adam. The eternal son of God was made of woman so that he could be Adam for us, a new one, a better one. And Satan knew this, and so he's been resisting the promise throughout all of history, seeking to thwart God's promise. And even when the Lord was born as an infant, the dragon was seeking to devour him as Herod committed mass infanticide. Herod, an offspring of the serpent, committed mass infanticide, seeking to kill this promise. But he could not succeed. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And throughout Jesus' life, we see him doing battle with the serpent. That's what his whole ministry was about, forgiving and healing and casting out demons and speaking the truth to the sons of the serpent who were seeking to kill him. But the real trampling victory of the serpent we know happened at the cross. Before Jesus went to the cross, In John chapter 12, he says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And to the shock and the horror of his disciples gave himself over to the serpent. And the serpent trampled him down. He was stripped and beaten, bloodied and bruised, spit upon and hung up as a spectacle, as a man cursed of God. But we know the secret. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. See, God did not bring down the full weight of his curse and execution upon Adam and Eve in the garden because he had purposed from the very beginning to come in the person of the son as the seed of the woman and bear it away and swallow it up in his own body on the tree. Jesus faced down the serpent, and he defeated them and trampled him down on the cross by being trampled for us. The true and better Adam gave up his life for his bride. 
And as he did that, he claimed his rightful place upon the throne of the reborn human family. The true seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. Right, we see a vision in the, in the visionary prophecy of Revelation. We hear these words speaking of the victory of Christ. John hears something. He hears a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Amen? But we know even after the cross, the story's not over. Satan's doom has been sealed. His destruction, however, is still not yet. He still rages against the people of God. We still live in this sin-cursed world. And it's not easy, right? From a natural, a purely natural and temporal perspective, it looks still like the serpent has won. Evil continues to ravage mankind. Death is still death. Pain, barrenness, toil, and futility still permeate every aspect of our lives. Life still feels like a barren wilderness. And we are in exile in Satan's Babylon. But this is where the promise comes to us just as it did to Adam and Eve, in the midst of this mess and ruin, we hear the gospel proclaimed. We hear the gospel and a message of hope proclaimed, a message of hope buried in the curse. And we, our ears perk up. Right? Hope is ignited. The serpent and his kingdom have been brought to nothing and will be brought to nothing. The true king has taken back his throne and he will take it back completely. The lamb has conquered. And so God calls us today to lift up our eyes and see the truth. See the truth of what God has done. In closing, I want to draw your attention to a painting that I've gone back to multiple times as I've been thinking about this sermon. I'm not going to show a picture of it. and We don't have a way to do that. I don't have it in your bulletin. But let me describe it for you. The painting is called Mary Consoles Eve. And it's a picture of two women. One is Eve and one is Mary. And in the painting, Eve is holding the cursed fruit as if she had just taken of it. She's holding the cursed fruit close to her body. Her head and her shoulders are down. Her eyes are full of sorrow. Her hair is covering her body. The tail of the serpent is still wrapped around her ankles. But Eve is being comforted by a pregnant Mary. And Eve has taken one Hand, and Eve, Eve has one of her hands on Eve, Mary has one of her hands on Eve's cheek, comforting her. And with the other hand, Mary has taken Eve's hand and placed it on her pregnant belly, 
And there, and Mary is looking down at her pregnant belly with a look of hope, with a faint smile like she knows a secret. She's clothed in white, and her foot is stepping on the very snake's head that is coiled around Eve's ankles. She's stepping on it, not even looking at it, just stepping on it. What is this painting communicating to us? It's profound. It's saying that God did not leave Eve. He didn't abandon Eve to the serpent. He didn't leave her to wallow in her shame and nakedness. He clothed her. If you continue to read the story, you see what God did. He clothed them. And though he sent them out into the wilderness, he clothes Eve and he arms her with this promise. He arms her with the gospel. Mary here is a beautiful picture of believing Eve, of Eve restored, reborn in faith in this promise, with hope growing in her body. And ultimately, She's a picture of all God's believing people who hope in his promise. The words of blessing that Elizabeth declares to Mary applies equally to the church across the ages. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. See, we are called to the same faith and the same gospel that Eve was called to after she had failed, that Adam was called to after he had failed, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet, the Apostle Paul says. Do you believe that? This is what we're called to believe, and we don't yet see it fully realized, but as the author to the Hebrews says, we see Jesus. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, bitten in the heel by the serpent, but raised and reigning from heaven. This is our reality. Are you wallowing in shame today? The shame of your sin? Are you cowering today before your accuser? Are you despairing because of the brokenness and the barrenness and the futility of this sin-cursed world and of the evil of this Babylon? Has death touched your life? Look to the cross. Look to the seed of the woman. He has conquered He has overthrown and overturned the curse. The kingdom of God has been established and is expanding. The gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying in the earth and has been across the ages. God has been gathering a people of promise who look to him for salvation, who look forward to a creation reborn. And the Lord wants to fill you today with the same hope. 
the humble, serene, restful confidence of Mary to know that redemption is coming. It has happened and it will be completed so that you can say today as you walk through those doors with Mary, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. He has fulfilled his promise and he will complete it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your ancient promise given to our first parents and how you have remained true and faithful to your word. Not one word has fallen to the ground, but you have fulfilled all things in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and you will bring it all to completion. Help us to lift our eyes. Lord, help us. Help us to look to the reality that is the kingdom of God being built by the Spirit, even today, and to live in the light of that. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.